The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really great to be with everybody today. I hope, trust that folks are healthy and doing well. And for those of you who aren't healthy or aren't doing well, I care about that. Um, I'm imagining that a lot of us care about each other. It's one of the unfortunate reverberations of our COVID era is that it's easier for us to be disconnected and not as responsive, not as able to take care of each other in, in ways that we'd like to. So let me just remind folks that you can always reach out to the center if you're struggling at home, need help from the community. And one of the ways we get the word out is in our weekly email. Those of you who've been reading the weekly email know that at the bottom of those weekly emails, periodically, there are messages from community members, both those who live in the Twin Cities area, but also our wider community around the country and even outside of the U.S., and you're always welcome to reach out to us if that might be useful. And we'll do the best we can to support you. And you can get on our weekly email list if you want that uh, weekly reminder of what's going on in the community um, by going to the website, commongroundmeditation.org. And um, there's a place there, I think it's uh, either in the About Us or under the uh, Community main menu item, and then the drop-down menu will say joining the weekly or joining the community email list or something like that. Otherwise, just send an email to the center and we'll get you on that list. So the yesterday, or not yesterday, but last Sunday and then today and maybe next Sunday as well, I thought it'd be good at the beginning of the year, sort of important and important to be fearless about talking about freedom. And it can be intimidating, both as a teacher and as practitioners, for us to reflect in our relationship with Nibbana, you know, the cessation of suffering, the cessation of craving, the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion from the heart, from the mind stream, the mind, the heart that's not grasping. And uh, maybe even in the guided meditation this morning, just understanding the flavor of that freedom. We need to have some intuition and some experiential, direct understanding of that experience. And you know what? We do. Because we have definitely, I don't know anybody who doesn't have the experience of being all bound up with tension and reactivity and hate and fear and lust and all the things that... <clears throat> can bind up the heart, so we feel all bound up, entangled, and tight. So we know that experience, right? I'm assuming you're all nodding. We all know that experience. So when that grip of hate, let's say, is really tight, can we experience the beginnings of that untangling, releasing, right? We know that, don't we? We often miss it, you know, we know that yesterday in the afternoon I was all bound up. But do we remember how at 4.30, between 4.30 and 6.30, whatever that knot, that grip was, it went away. Because 
it doesn't continue forever. <laughs> I mean, we've been in really tight places many, 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 many times in our lives. But to have many of those experiences of tightness meant many, many, many times that tightness went away. How did we miss that? How come we're not that interested, not that fluent in recognizing the releasing, the putting down of the grip of hate, the grip of lust, the grip of delusion and distractedness? How come we miss that? So part of what the Buddha wants, you know, the instructions from the Buddha is like, hey, this is relevant. It's relevant to notice how we get bound up, but it's just or maybe even more relevant to notice how the unbinding happens. And we don't have to be, uh, you know, because we're not perfectly free human beings, it's, sometimes we think, oh, I can't, you know, talk about the unbinding of my heart. I can't talk about freedom. I can't talk about release because people will think I'm, you know, pretending to be further along the path than I am or something like that. And that's just weird and neurotic too, you know, that we can't have these conversations. And the Buddha, as a lot of you know, you know, he taught about suffering and the end of suffering. And it's it's this dynamic of really getting to know the grip, all the different ways the heart gets tight, bound up and entangled. It's really an understanding that as a natural phenomena, how we get angry, how we seek revenge, how we get deluded by the promise. If I get this in my life, if I become this person, then I'll be released, then I'll be happy, right? That promise that's never kept. So as we get to know that, we necessarily have to know the unbinding of that. As we get to know how it gets bound up, we start to get to know how it unbinds. And we want to, you know, we want to celebrate that. And we want to get a sense of that flavor, that taste of the unbinding of the releasing, of the disentangling, of the softening, of the opening. Just like we want to get to know what it's like to be, to fall into the grip of <clears throat> those reactive patterns of hate and greed and lust and fear, distractedness, that kind of neurotic chasing after some interesting thing, you know, just... Can you imagine if um, every day, you know, this would be an intervention for especially our Western culture, but now it's probably everywhere in the world. But, you know, if every day we had to sit down and watch with interest a video of, you know, a sort of a, a very well edited video, 30 minute video of people neurotically searching through the internet for something interesting to read or watch. You know how it is, when we see human beings acting out in kind of crazy neurotic ways, it's like there's this humiliation, like, oh, I'll never do that. You know, I'm not going to be that stupid person who, you know, is scrolling. <laughs> what do they, they call it? Doom scrolling, I think. Someone coined that term. There's probably other really great terms for that relatively new 
expression of greed, hatred, and delusion that, you know, but it, but seeing it, seeing humanity caught in the grips of thinking that I'm going to get some kind of entertainment or some sort of juicy nugget from my doom scrolling of the internet that will make some kind of difference in my life. I mean, we know it intellectually, that's not going to happen, but you and I will be there later today, one way or another, right? <clears throat> in our own particular way. And if it's not, you know, maybe some of you, older ones especially, aren't as addicted, then you'll have your own ways of doom scrolling, whether it's gossiping with friends or, you know, sort of uh, bugging your partners, <laughs> telling your partners what they should be doing or, you know, whatever it is. We have these ways, these places we keep going back, thinking that the heart's going to be relieved. The heart's going to... It's like trying to feed on something that doesn't provide any nutriment. And I've, I've mentioned many times this powerful simile from the Buddha, where he talks about a very, very skilled butcher who carefully, with a sharp knife, removes all the meat from bones and then eventually throws the bones to the dog. But there's nothing on the bones but a little bit of smeared blood because of the skill of the butcher. And yet the dog, thinking that there's going to be some nutriment there, gnaws on the bones, even to the point of uh, the gums of the dog starting to bleed. And then he thinks, oh my God, there is something juicy here. But it's just the blood of the, the dog's mouth itself. And that's such a graphic, powerful image for me, I don't know for you, but just that habit of seeking something, uh, seeking release, seeking fulfillment in a place where we're not going to find it. And the Buddha talks about these four ways our whole, our whole approach to living is distorted. These four distortions in the way we perceive, in the ways we think, and the ways we view or understand. So the distortions start as just um, distortions in how I see or experience sound and sight and sensation and thought. But then it gets, you know, the delusion gets deepened by me thinking based on my misperception. And then the, mis the thinking about my, uh, in these misperceiving ways or thinking about things that are based on misperce misperceptions then gets solidified into a view, a fixed view, a so solid view, like what I believe in. So much do I believe in this, I don't even realize I believe in this. Like self <laughs> is an example. Like the sense of being a separate self is uh, arises from learning ways of perceiving my experience as if there is somebody my experience is referring back to, and then starting to think, you know, how I narrate my experience to myself, how I talk to other people, as if that's true, that there is somebody who receives experience. And then that becomes such a fixed view, it's not even easy to see that it's a view. Because why would that be a view? It's the way it is. So the distortions, the Buddha breaks it down into four, you know, thinking things are permanent when actually everything's in motion. There is nothing static about our subjective experience. Nothing. 
the way we experience, have always experienced, will always experience this present moment will be as activity, motion, movement. There's no thingness, no nouns, only verbs. So we perceive and think and have a view that things are solid, but they're movement, they're impermanent, they're flow. Rivers. We think things are satisfying. If I get this, I'll be satisfied in some kind of meaningful, lasting way, but that's just not true. We don't, the sense of self, the sense of me that wants to be satisfied will never be satisfied. And it isn't that the world's at fault, like, you know, the world isn't delivering exactly what I need. If it did, then I would be satisfied, but it doesn't. No, the premise itself, that there's a self that wants to be satisfied, is not based on our experience. It's based on a misperception. So there will never be satisfaction in the way we imagine there will be satisfaction. And that's the truth of dukkha. It's not, again, it's not that I'm not living a privileged existence and therefore it's unsatisfying. I don't get what I want. You know, look, talk, interview the people who get what they want. See if they're satisfied. You know, they're not satisfied either. And even people who tell you they're satisfied, right? Just because there are moments when we don't think we're suffering, but that doesn't mean we're not actually suffering, right? Because we can, we believe what we think. And I'm sure you've had friends who tell you, I'm fine. And, but we know them well enough, we know, no, no, you're not fine. Not that we would say that to them, or that it's even our responsibility to say that to people. But we can have that intuition, that kind of deeper sense, like, oh no, there's some, there's something churning, something unsettled here, and I care about you, but I don't believe, I don't believe the party line that you're okay, right? Or that you're happy, even. So we imagine things are permanent in ways that they're not, that that experience is satisfying in ways that it's not, that things are personal, experience is personal in ways that they're not. It's nature, it's not self, it's causes and conditions. And that things are beautiful in ways that they're not. That doesn't mean things experience seeing a sunset is ugly, but it's not actually beautiful in the way we imagine it's beautiful. It's just the sunset. And a lot of people misunderstand this point, like, oh, the Buddha is really a drag. <laughs> you know, like, he's going to take the, a flower, the beauty of a flower and the sunset and a puppy away from me. Oh, God, <laughs> what's the point? And this is the thing, we have to, we want to explore this, like, what is when we are willing to soften and relax around our fixation of what we think is beautiful, we might find that in that neither beautiful nor ugly, like the intimacy of being with things as they are, is much more satisfying, much more alive, much more real than me clinging to an idea that the sunset is beautiful. I mean, again, if we just watched all the ways we try to capture beauty, I mean, think about, since the invention of the cell phone, how many photographs have been taken of beautiful settings. I mean, it's got to be billions and billions. 
Now, has that made anybody happier that they've, you know, the idea, the misperception that there are some things that are special and beautiful, and there's some things that are not special and ordinary or even ugly, has that led to the human heart being more happy or free? Or does it lead to a lot of distress? And that we can check out for ourselves. This is from, I, I think I put this in the Sunday resources, um, which if any of you came late, I'll just put into the chat again. And um, yeah, those resources have several articles that are sort of in the same area of the talk that I'm giving today and last week and probably next week. And one of those articles is from Gil Fransdahl, a wonderful teacher from the West Coast, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City and the South Bay, south part of San Francisco Bay. And uh, it's called, his article is called, What We Gain When We Learn to Let Go. And here's just a couple short paragraphs. Sometimes it's more important to understand the shortcomings of the grasping itself rather than the object of grasping. Grasping always hurts. Right? So instead of like, oh, I shouldn't, like if you're sitting and your body's a little uncomfortable, you've got some pain in your back, let's say. And um, the mind might want to fixate on the throbbing pain and trying to, but it may be more interesting and more relevant to notice the grasping, the not liking of the pain in the back. And just leave the pain of the back what it is, but just see if the not liking, getting to know that not liking for what it is, and you might discover it's not helping, the not liking of the pain. And when you get really clear about how not liking the back pain isn't contributing in any way, the identification with the not liking, thinking that it's me that doesn't like it, but just seeing the not liking as an object, uh, a, a pattern in the mind, in the heart, it might actually weaken and fall away. You still have back pain, but there will be no not liking of the back pain. And here Gill is really saying that's actually more relevant in our practice. And he continues writing, it is the primary source of suffering, this grasping. It limits how well we can see what is happening when it is strong Clinging can cause us to lose touch with ourselves. It interferes with our ability to be flexible and creative, and it can be a trigger for afflictive emotions. By investigating both the grasping itself and the object of our grasping, it becomes possible to know which of these we need to let go of. If the object of grasping is harmful, then we can let go of that. If the object of grasping is beneficial, then we can let go of the grasping so that which is beneficial remains. Helping a neighbor, caring for your own health and welfare, enjoying nature can be done with or without clinging. It is accomplished much better without the clinging. Right? So like if I realize that I have a health problem and I need to take care of it, I can take care, like do get more exercise or eat better or take some medicine or whatever <clears throat> might be a, a good intervention. I can do that with grasping, with fear, with greed, with aversion, 
or without. And as Gil says in such a practical way, it's always better to do it without the grasping. And so I would use this, you know, I, I used in the guided meditation the sense of openness. And I'll, I'd use openness as a kind of opposite of grasping. I mean, there are many ways to talk about the opposite of grasping. Freedom, the cessation of the mind that grasps, the cessation of craving. You know, that's literally how the Buddha defines freedom or Nibbana. It is the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion, or that grasping. That word Nibbana was around at the time of the Buddha, Nirvana, Nibbana. The root is like a fire going out. The flames of a fire go out. They cease. Because the fuel, like the fire, the burning of craving, the burning of grasping, the burning of struggling, depends on this interaction between the fuel and the activity of trying to get something from the fuel. Right? And that's the image the Buddha used. Like when there's a mind mistakenly trying to get something for somebody based on the fuel of experience, then they're suffering. And when that fire, the mind trying to get somebody, something for somebody, when that ceases, there's no fire. And there's the coolness, the emptiness of that agitation, the emptiness of suffering. Suffering has ceased. This is from Ajahn Sushito's, um, I put a few paragraphs from his article, Original Openness. He's a Western Buddhist monk. He teaches here in the States quite a bit now and has been a monk for many decades, wonderful teacher, somebody I've had the opportunity to sit and practice with. And he writes, but that's how you wake up. Life is most alive when you can be present at the edge of the unknown. And if there's one way in which the property of the deathless can be experienced right now, it's in the ability to living free of the heart's contraction of fear, depression, and holding, and holding on that comes with the loss of the known. Remember, deathless is a synonym, a synonym for freedom, for release, for nibbana, the unconditioned. And he continues writing, death, separation, uncertainty, they are all part of life. The Buddhist teaching is that we have the original potential to handle and in fact blossom in the face of these. See, our wrong view tells us that with death, separation, uncertainty, I have to control those, then I'll be okay. But but this practice of openness, this Dharma practice we're doing, is that, like uh, he just wrote, we have the original potential to handle and in fact blossom in the face of these. We don't have to feel threatened, anxious, needy, or inadequate. With wise openness, the main causes and conditions for human misery cease. So that's our homework this week and uh, something you can discuss in the small groups if you want to stay 
um, at the end at uh, 11.45 Central Time. I'll turn it over and Shannon or Nancy will organize some small groups. But whether you stay or not, this is our homework to explore directly in our own experience when we're sitting in formal meditation, then any time during the rest of the day, whenever it comes up, whenever you remember, oh yeah, there's that thing that I've been studying about being open, wide open. And like now, right? Like this, and you can even have that sense of leaning back instead of sort of being the doer trying to get safety or get freedom or but sensing, like, well, maybe as Ajahn Sushito writes, that we have this original potential right here and now to blossom in the face of what's already here and now, the circumstances, the conditions, what I'm feeling in my heart, what's happening around me, what's rattling around in my thinking mind, that maybe relating with openness It, it's that sense that the um, potential for freedom is already here. Maybe it's not fully trusted yet or fully recognized yet, but we want to just have that sense. I want to read another thing from one of uh, Ajahn Sushito's colleagues. Ajahn Sumedho was actually one of Ajahn Sushito's teachers, along with Ajahn Chah this famous Thai meditation monk and teacher. Um, Ajahn Sumedho was one of the first uh, Western monks to train and ordain other Westerners. And he's quite old now, close to getting closer to 90, but still teaching. And this is from a wonderful book, uh, The Mind and the Way, that you can get. And he's talking about, uh, he's sort of summing up the Buddha's path. And he writes, as human beings, we are vulnerable little creatures. In contrast to the universe, we are weak and soft. For example, we have very delicate skin that's easily damaged. But in spite of our vulnerability, in the midst of a vast and mysterious universe, one can feel, feel total trust. From my own insight through meditation, I know that there is total trust now. There is complete confidence in the benevolence and the wonder of the universe. Now, that's pretty provocative, right? It almost sounds like, uh, you know, we don't hear that very much in the Buddhist tradition. And he, like he says, Ajahn Sumedho says, I'm speaking from my own experience about this total trust. And remember, he's not he's not sort of painting an optimistic picture and he's not painting a pessimistic picture. He's really relaying a realistic accounting of his own experience. And what we do with that is we don't believe that Ajahn Sumedho was right. Hopefully we're inspired to check it out for ourselves. Like what happens when I cultivate openness in my life? Do I get flattened like a bug on a windshield, taken advantage of? What actually happens when we start to experiment? And where should we start experimenting? Well, we should probably start where we feel relatively safe in our lives. 
you know, like when we put aside 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 15 minutes for a meditation period and we have a quiet space in our home and we've shut our cell phone down, we've told the people we live with to leave us alone for a little bit, put our pets maybe in the other room or whatever works. And it's relatively safe, right? Because we're at home, sitting in the corner that we like, in the chair and the cushion that we like. And we practice there being radically open. And we see what happens. We check it out. That's that famous phrase from the Buddhist teachings, Ehi Pasiko, come and see. Come and check it out. See what happens for yourself. See if it's skillful. If it's onward leading, has the flavor of release that our hearts naturally trust. Or see if it goes the other way. Oh, this is not for me. This does not seem helpful. This is the wrong direction. There's a little bit more here I want to read. One can't really perceive the whole, the vast universe in any clear way. One can only open to it. Ordinary human consciousness is limited to the perceptions we have through our senses. It is very difficult for us to catch glimpses beyond that. But the more we let go of our grasping of the sensory world, and you know, another word you could use here instead of grasping, the more we let go of our fixation or our dependence on the sensory world, and then this is his continued writing, the less we hold on to it and identify with it, the more we begin to have glimpses of deathlessness. We begin to experience Amravati, which is the name of the monastery that he founded um, in England, and it means the deathless realm. The underlying unity, the overlying compassion, the whole wondrous miracle. It's part of the human condition that in spite of our oblivious or uh, in spite of our obvious limitations as hu- uh, as individual creatures, we have an ability to comprehend the whole. But that comprehension comes not from the perception of the whole, but from opening of the heart. Now that's an important thing because it talks about how we practice. I'm not trying to project openness or wholeness on my experience. It's really more, like he says, opening the heart, opening the mind, or resting back in the way it is. He continues writing, We are not trying to believe in a perception of wholeness that we hold as a doctrine. We are going to the very experience of wholeness as we open the heart. This is fearlessness. It is the willingness to be hurt, to be totally sensitive, and to bear with the pain, despair, and confusion of our sensory experience. So the future is unknown. As spiritual seekers, we turn toward the unknown. Rather than constantly hanging on to the known in our meditation, more and more we begin to open our heart to the unknown. And here the unknown, we don't go looking for the unknown, we relax the mind's grip around meaning, that it, thinking that we need to know what's happening in my meditation. Like even now, there could be a subtle way like, oh, I want to get what Mark is talking about, as opposed to even now, practicing just being open. 
It's almost like the words wash through. They have their effect, but we aren't trying to figure out what the effect is. As if having an idea what the effect of being here at this talk is, is going to solidify something. It's always coming from this wrong perception that there's a self who needs to get the truth in order to be free. And that's a wrong perception. And it leads to practicing in ways that cause more stress, not less. So it's always this sort of chicken and egg. If we want to be free, we have to practice being free here and now. Even while our perception is that I'm a screwed up individual, how could I practice being free now? Or this is, I live in a screwed up world, how could I practice being free now? This can't work. A little bit more, I want to read a few more sentence, sentences. So the last part I read, um, more and more we begin to open our heart to the unknown. We relish that. We long for that. Just the simple openness of the heart and the willingness to bear with life as we are experiencing it, with all of its ups and downs, good fortune, bad fortune, pleasure and pain. We are no longer crying for God to protect us and help us and send us good fortune. We are no longer expecting a life that offers only good health and pleasure. We'll take whatever comes, whatever it is. This is the way we approach the future, not by looking for protection and not by opening, but by opening our hearts. Now that's very provocative and it's not like I would say to somebody who's trying to get more justice in their life or get enough food to eat that, oh, you just have to open. And that's why I said we, we start with when we feel relatively safe. Because even then in those moments where we are desperately struggling to survive or desperately, in a sense, struggling to help somebody else survive or do better in life, we can still be open. It doesn't, you know, openness is not the same as passivity. And this is the real lie or misunderstanding we have to check it out for ourselves and to realize how functional it is to be wide open. It doesn't get in the way of being an, a real human being who feels, who cares, who responds, who engages. But this is what we have to learn for ourselves. And of course, the habit is we want to just get the truth so we can believe in it, you know, but that's sort of that shortcut never really works. I thought it might be nice to end today by bringing Thich Nhat Hanh to mind. Some of you know he passed away um, maybe a day and a half ago, Friday night or Friday sometime. He spent the last few years of his life back in Vietnam where he grew up at the monastery where he ordained as a 16-year-old. If you don't know Thich Nhat Hanh, he was here in the West for many decades because as an activist, an activist monk, in Vietnam, in the early years of the Vietnam War, uh, nobody liked him. <laughs> you know, the South Vietnamese government, the North Vietnamese government, the U.S., because he was a peace activist. And he went to Paris during the peace talks to be an activist, to protest, and they wouldn't let him back. So fortunately for us in the West, he taught many decades in the West, wrote many books, it's a really powerful force bringing the Buddhist teachings to the West. 
and I had the good fortune of uh, sitting with Thich Nhat Hanh at Plum Village in France, the monastery there, for three weeks about 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a real highlight of my practice life. So this is a poem, and it really talks about this freedom with exposure. And uh, if you don't know, being Vietnamese and deeply caring about the terrible tragedy of that war that lasted so long, and then even all the reverberations after the war, the people leaving and the taking the boat across the bay into Thailand to escape, and all the terrible stuff that happened, and he was really involved in that, you know, resettling of the Vietnamese people that left Vietnam during and after the war. And I think this poem comes out of it. it this poem was written, I think, in the 80s. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. And you can find this if you just Google, Please Call Me By My True Names, Thich Nhat Hanh. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch. To be a tiny bird with still fragile wings. Learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes the flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and all my laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up, so the door of my heart can be left open the door of compassion. So receiving the blessings of Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful presence and great teaching for so long. And I encourage folks to, much, much of his stuff is available online. You can find Dharma talks of his. His presence itself is quite powerful. So to watch a video of him talking about practice 
might be a nice little treat for yourself just on YouTube or many other places you can find it. You can go to the Plum Village website as well. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.